This is a Triple J podcast. Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack podcast. Do you reckon politicians should be randomly drug tested at work? Because one Victorian MP's making headlines for saying he thinks they should. He wants drug screening for politicians because if it's good enough for other professions, it's good enough for them. That's what he says. But how effective is random drug testing in making workplaces safer? Is it as cut and dry as it seems? We're going to be getting into this issue a bit later on. We've got someone who's spent many years researching this area. If you're a person that undergoes mandatory random drug and alcohol testing at work, you're probably going to want to stick around and listen to that. Also coming up, we're getting an update on a story that's captivated the country over the past couple of weeks, this mushroom poisoning story. Several people are dead. Uh, the person who made this lunch that has potentially poisoned people is calling for understanding what's going on there. First, though. Hack. Elliot Foote and three other Australians have now been found safe after their boat went missing in rough water off Arche at the weekend. On Triple J. When news came through overnight that a group of Australians on holiday in Indonesia had gone missing in a boat, it didn't look good. Not only had they been out of contact for more than a day, but there was rough weather, they were in this small boat. It seems like these 30th birthday celebrations had turned to tragedy. But then, incredible news. The four Aussies, Steph Weiss, Jordan Short, Elliot Foote and Will Teagle were alive. Here's a bit of sound from a video rescuers took after finding three of the Australians floating on surfboards earlier today. Yeah! Yeah! Incredible stuff, right? So how did it all play out? And is everyone saved? Let's find out a bit more. Maggie Rayworth is a Nine News journalist who has actually been with the families of these uh, Aussies today, and she's with us now. Hey, Maggie, thanks for coming on Hack. Thanks for having me, Dave. Good evening. What do we know about what's happened here? How did these Aussies go missing? Well, it's a rather remarkable story, but what we know, Dave, is that these four Aussies, they were heading out to Indonesia to celebrate a 30th birthday. It was a it was a surf trip. And what we know is that these guys, they st- left from the island of Nice uh, and they headed off uh, on quite a long boat journey to a rather remote part of Indonesia, another island uh, where they were set uh, to do a big surfing trip there. But it was during that boat journey from one island to the other where they struck a bit of trouble. We understand that there was a storm and that there was uh, some pretty severe weather that they were struck with. And, and that obviously has forced them to come off their boat. Uh, We're not really sure just yet the circumstances of how that all unfolded, but what we know, Dave, is that they were literally stuck in open water uh, clinging to their surfboards. So they were very lucky indeed to have those boats, but they were literally stuck in open water. We're thinking for about 36 hours, we believe, so nearly 40 hours in open water. It's crazy to think about, and I've got to be honest, when I saw this story pop through last night and I heard the reports of bad weather and the fact that they were in this boat, I thought, oh, it doesn't look good at all. How were they found? Because, like, we just heard some audio of the of the rescue there. What do we know about how that all happened? Oh, I, I could watch that video a million times. It, uh, it's incredible. What we know is that uh, these, the friends and family of these four Aussies, they just took to social media calling for anyone who could to help um, and join the search and rescue efforts to find these four surfers. So any, there was obviously a lot of Aussies in Indonesia, there always is, and they really banded together to, to do what they can to, to help these surfers. But they were found earlier today uh, by a search and rescue team or and, and some people that were just on their boats as well. So they found them just 
just clinging to their surfboards. It's extraordinary. And uh, you mentioned the Aussies in Indonesia who are banding together. Also, there was this huge social media push as well. These young Australians have so many friends, obviously, and they were all out on social media, obviously sending thoughts, hoping, praying for the best, but also trying to get resources together to help with this search. I mean, Maggie, you've been actually with the families of some of these people today. How was that? I mean, such an emotional, full-on time to be with the families. What what happened there? Who were you with? I, I was with uh, Steph Weiss's parents, uh, Jill and Wayne, um, and, and they, they're incredible people. Very, They just consider themselves very lucky today. They say they've had a traumatic uh, last couple of days and, and they welcomed us in, our camera crew, and, and they chatted to us just about exactly what they've been through. But uh, for them, the hardest part was just not knowing. And, and there was they told me today there was just so many moments where they just feared the worst. They they started thinking that they'd never see Steph again, um, and and so they just talked me through that. But so that today they were very emotional. You know, there was many tears coming from them today. They couldn't believe just how lucky they were. But also, what was really scary for them is that. Uh, there was one point of the day where the three had been found. So that's Will, Jordan and Steph because they stayed together. Um, Elliot, who was Steph's uh, partner, he at one point actually left the group because he's the strongest in the group. So he left to go and find help. So when those three were found, Elliot wasn't there. So when all of us media and family got the news that three swimmers or three surfers had been found, um, it was a bit bittersweet for families, particularly like Steph's, because they we weren't really sure where Elliot was yet. But that news came shortly after, which, you know, came as a joy. But I guess that family really didn't feel they could 100% celebrate yet until um, they knew about Elliot, because um, obviously they're very close being together. Well, but, so- the, oh, very relieved. Uh, I would say very relieved. Dad. I can imagine. I can imagine, Maggie. Well, a lot of the other journalists were with Elliot's dad, Peter Foote. Let's have a bit of a listen to what he had to say. Jimmy's one of the boys on the island and he just sent me one. Uh, it's confirmed Elliot's alive. People so, have been um, pretty brief in their messages, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah, they're not big on the tooth, are they, for speaking? But um, I suppose that's the main things I need to know. Yeah, I would like to have more details, but... So that yeah. was the final confirmation you were waiting for? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah, James, I trust him very much. So um, he wouldn't send me that. And he's in charge of the search and the island there. So he wouldn't call them off till it was confirmed. You know, there's a lot of other guys still out there searching and you don't want to say, come in now and then find out it's not legit. So, um, yeah, if he confirms it, yeah, that's good enough for me. You know, for the last two days, I've been optimistic, you know, thinking I know they're good water people and... You know, it's, the water's nice and calm there. It's not the ocean, it's in the seas there and um, the water's nice and warm. And, um, yeah, I was always optimistic. I've spoke to some people that live up there, so it happens all the time. You know, surf boats break down, they drift for a couple of days and they find them. So it's quite common, apparently. So, uh, yeah, no, it's all good now. Pretty um, extraordinary, though. You're still feeling a bit of disbelief, given that you got a text, you know, meant to be from Elliot, and now you've got somebody that you trust also confirming it. Surely that's enough for you. Yeah, no, yeah, it's, a, it's enough. Yeah, but I'd still rather hear something directly from him. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, 
no, it's, it's, it's enough, I reckon. Okay, that was Peter Foote, Elliot's dad, and he actually did end up getting a message directly from Elliot saying, hey, Dad, I'm alive, pretty much that's what it said. I'm speaking with Nine News journalist Maggie Rayworth, who's been covering this extraordinary story about the surfers, the Aussie surfers being found off the coast of Indonesia. Maggie, we do know that there were some Indonesian crew that were missing as well. There were three Indonesian crew to have been found. Uh, we'll find out more details, no doubt, about that other crew member in the hours ahead. Do we know when these Australians are going to be heading home, Maggie? It's not quite clear yet. Uh, what we, When I was speaking to Steph's family today, they told me that Steph's just extremely exhausted, uh, that she, she was really struggling to string some words together when, when she did finally speak to them. Um, it, it looks like they will definitely be having a rest um, for the, for the sh- um, short term. Um, and, I, I, yeah, we're not, we're not 100% clear when they would be heading back to Australia um, or if they'll be hitting the water again anytime soon. Yeah, you'd think they'd be taking a little bit of a break from the surfing. Hey, we do appreciate your update on this. It's been a very big day, an emotional day for so many people. Maggie Rayworth, Nine News journalist, thanks very much for coming on Hack. Thanks for having me. Hack. New questions swirling about the deadly mushroom mystery, the bizarre tragedy now grabbing global headlines. On Triple J. There's a story that's captivated not only Australia, but the world over the past few weeks. Chances are you have been hanging on the updates too. I'm talking about this mushroom mystery. I mean, it sounds kind of light, maybe even funny, but it's not, it's serious. Three people are dead, another in a critical condition after a suspected poisoning. The woman who cooked this lunch, pleading for understanding, Here's a bit of a recap. Well, it's a saga that, as I said earlier, is gripping the world. Everyone uh, is focusing on this uh, extraordinary story. Investigators in Australia are still trying to get to the bottom of a suspicious poisoning that happened last week. And a family lunch turned deadly in Australia. A lethal meal of mushrooms has left three people dead and one fighting for their life. Death cap mushrooms may have been the culprit. That woman has not presented with any symptoms. So again, that forms part of our investigation, whether she did or didn't um, eat any of the mushrooms or anything else that may have been eaten on that particular day. There are very suspicious circumstances and a lot of people have uh, very uh, deep uh, suspicions about uh, Erin Patterson. Erin Patterson says she wants to clear the record. I'm devastated. I love them. Revealing she had used mushrooms that she bought from the local supermarket, as well as other dried mushrooms from an Asian grocery store. In that statement, she details the intense toll this is having, uh, the media scrutiny has been having on her mental and physical health. Ms Patterson says she too was hospitalised, going to the Monash Medical Centre two days after the lunch. I had gone there because I had bad stomach pains and terrible diarrhoea, she said. I was put on a saline drip and stayed in hospital overnight. Specifically, she lied about when she disposed of that food dehydrator. So she has admitted that it was hers. Hack Triple J. Yeah, there's so much to this story. Every day, another statement, more evidence revealed. So where are we at now? Let's find out. Donna Liu is a science reporter for The Guardian. She is right across this. I've been covering it for weeks. Donna, thanks so much for coming on Hack. Thanks for having me, Dave. This story is extraordinary, right? It's wild. Have you ever covered anything like this before? 
Look, I've covered death cap mushroom poisonings in the past, but certainly this one has attracted far more attention and interest than anything I've previously reported on. Yeah, it's just all of these different elements and people want to talk about it and everyone's got an opinion on it. For those who might not be across all the details, can you give us a bit of an explanation of what happened here? Like, what do we know? Sure. So, essentially, on the 29th of July, Erin Patterson cooked a meal, a beef wellington, it turns out, in Leongatha, which is a town about 135 kilometres southeast of Melbourne. She had four guests over for lunch, her former parents-in-law, Don and Gail Patterson, Gail's sister, Heather Wilkinson, and her husband, Ian Wilkinson. And within hours of the meal, which included mushrooms, the four guests began feeling quite unwell and sought medical treatment, and they eventually ended up at Austin Hospital in Melbourne's northeast. Uh, And unfortunately, since then, the Pattersons have both died, as has Heather, while Ian Wilkinson is in a critical but stable condition in hospital. So do we know for sure that it was mushroom poisoning? So what Victoria Police have said is that uh, the people who fell ill and died did have symptoms consistent with having eaten death cat mushrooms, which are extraordinarily toxic. At this point, they are staying pretty tight-lipped about the investigation and they haven't provided any specific updates in the last few days. Right. I was going to ask about what police have said. Like, have they been pretty quick to caution people not to jump to conclusions? They have interviewed Erin Patterson, but she hasn't been charged with any offence. And police have urged people not to speculate about the case as it could turn out to be all very innocent. Right, Okay. And Erin Patterson, who is the woman who cooked this meal, she's been in the headlines quite a bit because she's spoken to the media, also uh, given evidence herself, right? Yeah, so she, she provided a statement to Victoria Police on Friday, which was obtained by the ABC. And in that statement, she said she'd cooked this beef wellington, which contained button mushrooms that she'd bought from a major supermarket. And it also contained some dried mushrooms that she said she'd purchased a few months ago from an Asian grocer in Melbourne, but she wasn't able to identify the specific shop. She also said in this statement that she'd eaten the meal as well, and she went to hospital after developing some gastrointestinal symptoms. She and her ex-husband Simon have children who were not present at the lunch, um, but she said she gave them leftovers from from the meal the next night, but that because they don't like mushrooms, she had scraped them off the meal. Okay. I mean, uh, and is there evidence that the police are looking at? Like, have they been taking evidence from the property where this happened and that sort of thing? So Patterson has also told police that um, she provided what was left of this lunch to hospital toxicologists for analysis. Um, we know that police are conducting forensic tests on a dehydrator, which was, uh, which has been confirmed to be Patterson's, and that was seized from a nearby tip, the Coomora transfer station. Um, in her statement to police, actually, she, she did admit to previously lying to investigators about when she had dumped that dehydrator at the tip. And Initially, she told them she dumped it a long time ago, um, but in her subsequent statement, she said she had done it after that fateful lunch because she was worried she might lose custody of the couple's children. You are listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with Guardian reporter Donna Liu about this mushroom poisoning story that's got the whole country hanging on every update. Donna, you're a science reporter, so you probably know a bit 
about the technical details here in terms of uh, poisoning and dangerous mushrooms. How common is mushroom poisoning in Australia? Look, it, it does happen from time to time. Uh, authorities often issue public health alerts, particularly in years where there's lots of rain and moisture and there's lots of mushrooms popping up because often to the untrained eye, there's there's quite a lot of different poisonous kinds that can resemble uh, edible mushrooms. The death cat mushrooms particularly, when they're young, they kind of look like this creamy white colour and can be easily mistaken for straw um, or field mushrooms. And we do know that deaths occur. Uh, so back in 2012, for example, two people died in Canberra after accidentally eating death caps at a New Year's Eve dinner party. And in 2020, there was a Victorian man in his 70s who also died after potentially ingesting toxic mushrooms. Are there many treatment options available? Like if you've eaten a poisonous mushroom like this, can you be treated easily or does it turn like very serious really quickly? So the thing about death cap mushrooms particularly is that the toxins that they contain are super potent. So the death cap is responsible for about 90% of mushroom related deaths globally. And the issue um, with treating death cap poisoning is that the antidotes to the, this particular toxin that, that they contain is uh, mostly not very good. So essentially they contain um, this thing called amatoxin it's, it's specifically called alpha-aminitin. And this toxin basically binds irreversibly to cells and causes them to die. And what they can use is this compound called psilobinin, and that, that works by binding to the same receptors that this toxin binds to, particularly in the liver. The issue, though, is that the, the way the death cap toxin works is that there's a really long lag period between when you ingest the mushroom and when you might start showing symptoms. So you might only start showing symptoms about 6 to 12 hours after you've eaten the mushroom. And depending on the dose, you, you might actually need this drug before you're even symptomatic for it to be useful. And death caps, are they found across the country or only in some areas of Australia? No, so they're... they're but they're pretty contained. Um, they're found in Victoria and the ACT mainly. I mean, this is a huge story globally as well. Not only Australia, people might lose focus of the fact that the world is watching and, and hanging on all these updates as well. And it's really uh, intense because it's a small community at the centre of this case, Donna. Like, do we know what locals are making of all of this attention? I mean, it's, it's obviously rocked the small towns where, where this has occurred. Uh, the incident has left the local community in mourning. And, and Ian Wilkinson, who the, the one who's still in hospital, he is a Baptist pastor in the nearby town of Corumbara. And there have been, you know, there's been an outflowing of tributes to, to him and the others, and also even offers uh, from residents to donate their organs if that would help his recovery. Uh, the four people have been described as pillars of the community, so I can only imagine that, that you know, the, the towns are in shock at the moment. Well, look, it's definitely a story that we're going to continue to be hearing more about. I imagine as investigations continue, as we get some of the results from some of the testing that's happened, we appreciate your uh, insight into this. Donna Liu, science reporter for The Guardian, thank you for joining us on Hack. Thanks so much, Dave. Hack on Triple J. And some messages coming through on this story. A lot of people are weighing in with their thoughts, opinions. Someone says, I feel this has been turned into a trial by media. The commercial news are loving every second. That was from Josh in Cessnock. Another person says, I get that the world is intrigued by this, but... 
I've found the journalists covering this story have been grossly disrespectful. Standing at her front door is bad manners. Giving her driveway is a set fair way off the street. Yeah, look, a lot of opinions. I'm sure you're going to be hearing a lot more about this story. We'll keep you across the major developments, but time to move on. Hack. Victorian MPs could be subject to random drug testing. It's good enough for Trady. If it's good enough for our Matildas, when they step out on the field to submit to drug testing, then it sure as hell is good enough for the politicians of this state to do the same. On Triple J. Do you have random drug or alcohol testing at work? Like if you're in mining, transport, you work with heavy machinery, you're probably pretty used to it. What about politicians, though? Should they have to undergo random screening? Because it's an idea that's been kicking around for a while. It comes up every now and then, but it's hit the headlines again because a Victorian state MP is demanding drug testing for politicians in Victoria. In the past, there have been similar calls for this kind of policy for our federal MPs in Canberra as well. What do you think? Should politicians face drug testing, alcohol testing? Message in 0439757555. Also keen to hear from you if you already do this, how it impacts your life during and after work hours. Got some messages coming through. Brendan from Victoria on the text line. I'd be more likely to vote for politicians who are casual users, probably have less conservative views. That's Brendan's opinion there. Another person says, absolutely, test the politicians. Someone else Cops who exert extra force when arresting people or go beyond their legal powers should be drug tested. And someone else, FIFO life for six years, alcohol test every day before work and random testing throughout your 28-day swing. Test all politicians, rattle the tree and see what falls. A lot of opinions on this one. Someone who knows quite a bit about testing, how useful it is, is Dr Nicole Lee. She's an adjunct professor at the National Drug Research Institute at Curtin University, and she's with us now. Hey, Nicole, thanks for coming on Hack. Hi, thanks so much for having me. What do you think of this latest idea, push to drug test politicians in Victoria? Like, do you think this is a great way to grab a headline or is there more to it? Uh, Well, it certainly is a great way to grab a headline. And this idea just pops up on a regular basis. Um, for politicians, but generally it doesn't usually go anywhere. Um, we really have to think about the the purpose of testing and, you know, the idea of testing in sport is to ensure an equal playing field. The, um, the idea of testing in mining is to ensure safety. Um, the, the idea of testing politicians is really, um, you know, it's more to kind of catch them out or... Um, uh, that kind of thing. So, you know, we we need to really think about um, why we're putting in place testing. What does the research tell us about random <coughs> testing at workplaces? Like, is it effective in making workplaces safer? Well, the testing certainly has a place, but it's only really justified for what we sometimes refer to as safety-sensitive industries. So where if you go on a worksite drug-affected, you could actually be dangerous um, white collar workplaces don't generally need it, and it's actually not the best way to deal with alcohol and drug problems. Um, when we look at the problems that are associated with alcohol and drugs, most of them are actually not due to use at work. So people typically not are kind of in the lunchroom cracking a beer or sneaking a line of coke in the toilets at work. Most industries, um, you know, don't really encourage you to have that long boozy lunch that. Um, it was very famous in the 70s. 
Um, but where that still happens, most workplaces would expect you not to come back to work and it's often written in the policy. So much of the um, the use that impacts on the workplace tends to be at things like work functions or after hours, unofficial gatherings. And a lot of the problems associated with workplace drug and alcohol use is not about intoxication itself. It's more about the after effects. So people coming to work with a hangover or um, taking a sickie on a Monday because they've had a big weekend and testing is not going to solve those problems. Is there a difference between, you know, like if you're testing positive for a substance or whether you're fit for work? Because I guess the issue is like with alcohol and drugs, it would be quite different, right? Like alcohol, you can tell if someone's um, probably going to be pretty impaired, but things like drugs can linger in your system for a long time. Yeah, that's right. So the problem with illicit drug testing in particular is that you can still test positive to some drugs well after you're no longer impaired from them. So you're, um, you know, you're safe to work, but you could still return a positive test. Um, Alcohol is a little bit different um, because the the way that alcohol works and also our ability to test it um, is uh, is it's correlated. So impairment is correlated. Um, with um, the level of testing for alcohol, um, but it still only operates really as a gatekeeper to kind of keep people who might be affected off off a work site. We know from the research that it doesn't really um, reduce um, it doesn't reduce drug and alcohol use um, among workers, uh, and it doesn't reduce problems. Interesting. I mean, we heard a lot about alcohol testing in federal parliament a few years ago when there was that big review that found that there were massive issues with alcohol consumption in Parliament House in Canberra. Were you kind of supportive of like alcohol testing in that kind of workplace or do you think there are other things that need to be done? Yeah, that well, those two reviews that have happened, the Jenkins review um, looking at federal parliament bullying and sexual harassment in federal parliament and the um, Broderick review into bullying, harassment and sexual conduct in uh, the New South Wales parliament, um, both looked at that issue and they both came, to, came up with the same thing. They highlighted how entwined um, a toxic workplace culture and poorly managed alcohol and other drug use um, is. So they're definitely related. But the question about whether alcohol or drugs um, should be allowed at work or people who are affected by alcohol and drugs should be um, allowed at work is completely different from the idea of whether testing is a good tool to assess that problem and it's not. Are there issues around privacy that come up for people who are exposed to testing in the workplace? Is that something that, you know, they raise as an issue uh, that it is an invasion of privacy? Yeah, there's some argument um, around that and and some, um, you know, some people who've been dismissed based on um, drug testing have been able to return to work because um, the policies around drug testing haven't been tight enough and haven't been um, well thought through enough. So it's not enough just to kind of, um, you know, introduce testing into your workplace. Um, You need to uh, justify why and because it is an invasion of um, people's privacy, especially illicit 
drug testing, which, you know, they they probably would have used um, not at work. Um, and so it's really important if you're going to introduce um, testing in any workplace that there's really good type policies and procedures around it. Where does Australia sit when it comes to random testing in workplaces? Like, are we doing it more than most other countries? Um, look, we don't actually know because that data isn't really collected. So no one really knows how many organisations test or to what extent. Um, most of the major safety sensitive workplaces um, would be uh, would would have some kind of testing. So mining and manufacturing, transport and building and construction, for example. Um, but they have a range of testing regimes. So they might have um, a blanket testing is um, uh, one of those texts you just read out um, suggested, you know, every every day they would be tested, um, particularly for alcohol before they went on the work site, or there might be random testing um, or um, some workplaces just uh, do incident testing. So if there's a problem or an incident, then they will test the people involved. Well, from what I'm hearing Dr. Nicole, it sounds like it's probably not going to happen anytime soon. This is an issue that's been raised in the headlines for probably decades. You've been um, in this area of research for a while and you've probably seen it for a while, but it's it's good to get the facts in terms of what the research is telling us. Dr. Nicole from the National Drug Research Institute at Curtin University, thank you very much for coming on Hack and explaining all of that to us. Thanks so much. And we've got a lot of messages coming through on this one, as you can imagine, heaps of opinions. Someone says, I'd rather politicians be required to do lie detector testing. That was from Rhett. Another person, Jasmine, says, politicians make laws that put people away for doing drugs. Police arrest people for doing drugs and judges and magistrates convict people and send them to jail for doing drugs. Absolutely. These and other public servants should undergo drug and alcohol testing. Someone else. Isn't the testing supposed to stop possible death or injury? It's not like a politician can go out and create a law in an afternoon while under the influence. Someone else says, I think it's a waste of resources and money. So, so many opinions on this one. People for and against this idea. Some people thinking it is just about a headline, about wasting taxpayer money. Others all for it. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time. Hack on Triple Jack.